that first day was bananas. I mean, women were like lining up. Women were pissed because they were coming and they were like, it said you could walk in. And I'm like, oh, we don't have any more chairs. And, and I was, I was doing blowouts at the first chair and I was running the front desk. And I was, I mean, I was, I was there around the clock probably for six months before I took a day off because I just couldn't leave it. And I didn't want to leave it. It was so fun. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how Ali Webb went from being a stay-at-home mom just six years ago to building a national chain of blow-dry salons called Dry Bar. When Ali Webb was a kid growing up in Boca Raton in southern Florida, school wasn't really her thing. Nope, wasn't interested in school, wasn't very good at it. I was kind of dubbed the underachiever of the family. It was like, what the hell is Ali going to do with her life? She eventually went to college, and after about a year, she dropped out. For a while, Ali just sort of drifted. She lived in New York for some time, and then she moved back to Florida and lived with her parents. But her older brother, Michael... He, he seemed to have it all together. He was like the overachiever of the family. And he was like naturally good student. Like we're Jewish and he had a bar mitzvah. I was like, there's no way I'm going to Hebrew school. But he did it and he was great. And he was, he was like the smarty pants of the family. So while Allie was sort of floating around in her early 20s, Michael was doing pretty well for himself. He was moving up the corporate ladder. And in the mid-1990s, Allie started to have this idea of what she wanted to do with her life. So she asked Michael for advice. He was the first person I talked to about, and I said, you know, I feel like I really want to go to beauty school. Hmm. That is what I really want to do. And my parents were kind of like, they didn't get it, and they had these little old lady clothing stores in Delray Beach and Boca, and next to every one of them was a hair salon, and there was these like little old ladies getting their hair done, and they were like, that's what you want to do? I'm like, no, that is not what I want to do. I want to move to New York City, and I want to do fashion shows, and I want to do editorial, and I, you know, and I had like grand dreams of what I would do in the hair industry. And my brother, we had always been very, very close. Like if my parents were sitting here, they would tell you that he raised me. Like he, we were very, very, very close. He was really one of the few people who really believed in this little dream that I had. So I li- was living in Boca, and I m- enrolled in the local beauty school, and. I loved every second of it. From the moment I enrolled, I was like, ah, oh, these are my people. Yeah. I mean, that's how I felt. I loved it. I loved the environment. I was so happy, and I soaked it all up. And while I was in beauty school, I was working for a guy who owned a local salon, and he was amazing, and he taught me so much. And again, I wouldn't have known it at the time, but because he owned the salon, I really saw how he managed the salon too, which was an education I was getting that I didn't even know yeah. I was getting. And but you're, I mean, at, at that point, your your ambition in life was to was to work in a salon. Well, to do hair, and to I do didn't, hair. I didn't know what capacity that was going to be. Although I had this like itch to get back to New York. Now I was also a huge fan of John Sahag, who's sadly not alive anymore, but he was like the pioneer of dry cutting, which I'm not sure if I'm, you know. I'm assuming like instead of cutting wet hair, you uh, you cut it when it's dry? Exactly. And it wasn't just wasn't done before John. And he was like it. So like what like what made him it? Like what was his deal? He had one salon in New York on Madison Avenue. Mm-hmm. He was this rock and roll kind of cool guy. He had his two huge greyhounds that like sat next to him in the salons. And I had it in my head that was the only person I wanted to work for. So I moved to New York. And I remember it like it was yesterday. 
gun interview. I like walked in with my leather pants on and like tried to. Because like, you're trying to look New York. Trying to look New York and cool. And I remember him like looking at me and making eye contact, and I was like, I know I'm gonna get this job. <laughs> it was like an assistant job. It wasn't like the world's an greatest. An assistant. At the salon, and I, I was assisting him a little bit, and I was assisting the other stylist in the shop, which meant I was the person washing and blowing the hair. And it was a great education. I was still very, very new in the industry, even though I had my license and was on the floor in South Florida. It was a very different ballgame in New York. So, I mean, I used to do all of John's clients and his girlfriend, and, and it was like the best training you could ever imagine. Yeah, so, I mean, it sound, sounds like you were having a, a great time, but then I read that you left. You, like, dropped out of, of like, hair, and you went to become a publicist. Is, is that right? Well, not even. I became, like, an assistant to the guy who was running the music department at Rogers & Cowan. It's, like, one of the big ones in New York, and they represent everybody, which was a pretty awesome job. I mean, he represented Paul McCartney, Janet Jackson, Jennifer Lopez. So now I'm, like, I don't know, 25, 26, and I, then I started to get antsy again, but that was to like to find my husband and get married and have kids. Then wow. I started getting that bug. And during this time I did meet my husband and you, in, in, in New York. In New York City and we met at a at a bar named Hell in the meatpacking district. In hell. You met him in hell. <laughs> he always says we were a match made in hell. <laughs> a, like a dive bar in the meatpacking district that obviously doesn't exist anymore today. Okay, so you met this guy who was now your husband of course. What what was he he doing at the time? He was in advertising. So we started dating and we got very, it was like love at first sight. I mean, really, we were together like every day since and we practically moved in with each other like right away. So we, we were, we got married, we got engaged a year after we met and then we got married two years after we met. And I, I think I was, I, you know, having grown up in South Florida, the winters in New York were starting to kill me. And I was like, I got to get out of here. And so we decided to move to LA and he, for him in advertising, it's like he needs to be in a big city. So so you decided to move to L.A. just because you wanted to change the scene and he thought, I'll just get a job there. Yeah. And you figured, I'll figure something out. Yeah. Well, at that point, I was like really itching to have kids. Yeah. So we, within a year, we got pregnant and my first son, Grant, was born in 2005. And I was like as happy as could be. And I thought I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom forever. I loved every second of it. It was so great. And then we had our second son. And do you have kids? Yeah. Two boys. Yeah, so it was like it got a lot harder when there was two. And after being at home, I stayed home mom for five years, I got really antsy again. Like, I can't go to the park every day. And I remember my husband used to come home from work and I'd be like, because I hadn't really talked to kids all day. And I felt like, man, I need to do something for myself again. And that's 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 what initially started. And then it was like, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to go back to working at a hair salon? Like, I have two kids now. What do I want to do? And and because blowouts and doing hair was always my thing, and so many of my girlfriends would ask me to blow out their hair all the time. They, they would just like say, "Hey, can you?" Because they knew they knew my story. They knew I was hairstylist. I always had good hair, and so they would always ask. Would me, you charge them? No, no. I would just do it, especially if it was like for a party or an event or a wow. wedding or something. I just did everybody's hair, and I was good at it. And so I remember like sitting in my living room with my best friend, with our like babies crawling around and. I was like, you know, maybe I should start a mobile blow-dry business huh. where I go around and blow out, like, my mommy friends because I was very immersed in, like, the mommy community, which is really strong in L.A. So I posted on this mommy group called Peachhead where it was like a Yahoo group, and it was this resource for moms. It was like 5,000 moms in L.A., and they all went to this site. So I posted on there one day when I had this idea popped in my head. I said, I'm I'm a longtime stylist. I'm thinking about starting a mobile blow-dry business where I'd charge, I don't know, $35 or $40 
would anybody out there be interested? I got flooded with emails. Like, yes, I'm interested. I, I'd, I'd pay 35 to 40 bucks uh, for a blow dry. Yes, pretty much. So I, so I started getting emails. So then my husband was like, I think this is such a great idea. And he said, but you need a cute website. If they think it's cute, they'll call you. But at this point, you're thinking, this is going to be like my side hustle. Totally like, a side hustle. hustle. I am just I'm going gonna, to. Yeah. Were you thinking about getting a van? No, no. I was like, I thought about putting all the tools I had in a duffel bag and heading out the door. That was in your it. car. In my car. And so you would blow dry at their homes. Like yes. You'd go in. Okay. I was like, while your baby's sleeping, because like we were all like, when our baby was napping, was the only time we could do anything. I'll come to your house and blow dry your hair. You know, I mean, that was. I mean, this was not a very like thought out plan. That was. It was so basic. And honestly, we came up with forty dollars because it was like cheap and easy. It's like two twenties. Done. And, and, and you, like you put this out there on on this mommy website, and all of a sudden, mommies were like, "Yep, I totally want this." And and you start to like put things in your calendar. Yeah, and I started doing these boats. And of course, like I still had to pick up my kids from preschool at like two o'clock or whatever it was. And drive in LA traffic, right? Yes, I was in traffic, and between gas and whatever, I don't think I actually made any yeah, money. Right. But it really wasn't about the money. It was much more about getting out there and like talking to adults and just like doing something for myself and being able to kind of, you know, satisfy that desire in me to do something for myself again. So you start doing this. You start driving around Mm -hmm. the west side of L.A. And I got really busy really fast. And it was very word of mouth. Like I'd go and do one mom and then she would tell like six of her friends. And then all of a sudden they would call me. And it was such a thrill. And I got to the point where I was saying no more than I was saying yes. And so that's when I was like, huh, you know, this is interesting. And I think that's then I started asking my clients. I said, what what do you do when I can't come to your house? And they're like, well, I either like begrudgingly go to my cut and color salon where they overcharge me and want to cut my hair and there's all this pressure. Okay. Or I go to the like discount chain down the street, which kind of sucks and the experience is bad and bad lighting. And and I was like, God, there really is two bad choices out there and that's it. And so that's when I think the idea started percolating for me. And I was like, huh, you know, there's no place like in the middle. And that's when I went to my brother and he was working for Yahoo at the time. Also when Yahoo was in like, was like the thing. Yeah. And it was really successful. And he was watching my little business from the sidelines and he thought it was an interesting idea, but nothing beyond that. Mm -hmm. So I told him that I thought I should turn my little mobile blow dry business into an actual brick and mortar. So instead of me going to my clients, they could start coming to me. And I asked him to have basically help me and help me fi- finance it. Did, did at any point any anyone, particularly I'm thinking men, say to you, wait, you want to start a store? Uh, do what? Where you just blow dry hair and what? Like who's going to go there? That? Like why would anybody pay well, for that? Well, and also my brother, ironically, and my husband both bald. And they're <laughs> like, they have no, they're like, What? Although my husband always had this interesting insight because he knows what my hair looks like naturally. And he always would say, you get your nails done, but I never notice it. When you get your hair done, I notice it. And so he was like, I think this is the next nail salon. I think this is going to kill it. Let's do this. Coming up, how Allie started to imagine a salon with a service most women didn't yet know they wanted. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First to The Gromit. It's an online shop where you'll discover innovative products and gifts. You'll learn the story behind each product and the people who created it. 
you can easily find and support entrepreneurs and small businesses that align with your own values like made in the USA, sustainability, and social responsibility. It's a place to buy unique and thoughtful gifts, especially for people who are tough to buy for or seem to already have everything. Visit thegromit.com slash H-I-B-T to save $10 off $50 or more. Thanks also to GoDaddy.com. They give customers the tools and insights they need to transform their ideas and personal initiatives into success. With GoDaddy, small business owners have everything they need to get their business online, including award-winning 24-7 support. GoDaddy is the world's largest technology provider dedicated to small business. And they're offering How I Built This listeners 30% off all new products. Just go to GoDaddy.com and use Built30 to get started. That's B-U-I-L-T 30. And just one more thing before we get back to the show. As you probably know by now, at the end of every episode, we're telling your stories about the companies or products that you are building. So please do stick around to hear it. But for now, back to the show. It's How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So Aliweb had this idea for a business where you just blow dry people's hair. No cutting, no coloring, just blow drying. And her brother Michael and her husband Cameron, they were on board. So to start the company, they cashed out Cameron's retirement accounts. And Michael put in a chunk of money he had made during the dot-com boom at Yahoo. And the three of them, they started to get to work trying to figure out the details of what Drybar would be, while at the same time still holding their day jobs. That's when it was like the moonlighting phase, when I was still running my mobile business and taking care of my kids. My brother had a real estate marketing company at the time, and Cameron was a creative director in advertising agency, which is like he already was working crazy hours. So what would happen is every night once the kids were asleep, my brother was at his house, Cameron was home, we'd all be like on our laptops in bed and we'd be working on Drybar. And so Cameron at night started developing the Drybar website and building out the website. And he was really new to that. He'd never built a website, but he was a designer, so he could do all of that. So in the wee hours of the night, for weeks, we started developing the website and Michael and I started looking at real estate and trying to figure out where the shop was gonna go and talking to landlords and all this like crazy stuff. And I was on the phone with the cosmetology board, like around the clock, trying to figure out what I needed to open this shop. And and then, you know, that's kind of how it all started. Were you nervous? I mean, did you feel like like this will be okay or or was like a part of you (laughs) like this is a lot of money that we've put into this they were more nervous than me my brother was probably the most nervous because he had the biggest stake in it financially but I had a really good feeling I, I it was like one of those things in my gut I was like I know there's enough women out there like me that will make one shop work I'm sure one shop will work or at least work a little bit and and at that point we had figured out if we can do like 30 blowouts a day, 30, 40 blowouts, like that'd be a great business. And so in my mind, like I remember going to sleep at night being like, if we can do five blowouts an hour and we're open X amount, like I would literally like figure out how many people were going to have to come in to make those numbers. But you were going to do the the blowouts too, right? I mean, you were going to be uh, running the shop, blow drying hair, and you'd have to hire people. Yes. Well, so that the hiring process was kind of funny. And there's a couple of stylists that still work for us who remember this. Like I used to have stylists come to my house and blow out my hair. That was their interview. You know, I would talk to them, make sure they were nice. And then they'd blow out my hair. And if they did a good job, I'd hire them. I mean, that was it back then. And I only hired like, I don't know, about 15 stylists. And I wasn't 
sure, one of the things I wasn't sure about is if there was enough stylists out there like me that that were interested in just the styling part like I was, but there were. What was it that was going to be your, like, competitive advantage? Like, what, what was— There was no competition. There was no one doing no, this? No, there was no competition. There were hair salons. How is it that nobody thought of this? Nobody thought of it. There was nothing. So you oh, you you found a spot, and where did you open the first location? So I was living in Santa Monica, and the first location was on San Vicente, which was a thoroughfare. So if you came off the 405 and you were going to Santa Monica, to Palisades, or Brentwood, you kind of had to take that that route. And also, I should tell you that my brother, having worked on other big projects, and he met uh, this guy named Josh Heitler, who was an architect. And so my brother... One of the many, many things he's brought to the table, when I had this idea to have a salon, he went to Josh and said, do you want to build a hair salon for my sister? <laughs> and Josh was like, sure. And and we offered him some equity to to get involved. And, and that was, again, I, I don't even know if I would have thought of an architect. I mean, that was my brother. And, and what was your vision? Like, what was, when he came to talk to you, what did you say? Like, how did you want it to look? Well, I knew I wanted it to feel like a bar. And... I remember explaining to my brother and to Josh that if that something that happened in my mobile blow dry business, that when I would go to my clients' homes and do their blowouts, it was usually like in their living room. It was never in their personal bathroom in their home. So I'd do it in their living room. So they couldn't see the blowout when it was happening. And when I was done with the blowout, I'd say, okay, I'm now I'm ready for you to look, look at it. And so to go from not seeing your hair to seeing this amazing, gorgeous hair was like kind of a powerful thing. And I explained that to Josh and to Michael. And, and so that was kind of a task for Josh. Like, how do we incorporate that into the design of this shop? So we, um, the mirrors are behind the stations. And that's very intentional that when you, the client is done, the stylist spins her around for the big reveal. And that totally came from my my blowout business. So the idea was that the experience was going to be different? Well, and I wanted, again, it was like taking everything that I had accumulated in, in all of my years as being a stylist and saying, like, I'm just going to do it the way I want to do it, not the way I'm it's always been done. And of course, it was like a bar and I wanted the flat screen TV because I thought that would be like a fun getaway for women. And like, and what do you play on the TV? All like um, chick flicks. Nice. All chick flicks. And it's like movies that you probably wouldn't watch again, but when you see them and they have subtitles, you get really drawn in. I mean, I sit there sometimes and I'm like, oh, man, I love this movie. Sleepless in Seattle. It is. It's like Sleepless in Seattle, like how to be single. Like we play like Breakfast at Tiffany's, like all of it. And my Michael, my brother, had the idea to put charging stations for your iPhones at every I mean it was like it was such we got so lucky the fact that my brother and my husband and Josh and me it was like we were this perfect storm of all these people that came together to do this and that had the perfect skill set so it was just this we were this like powerhouse that nobody had to pay anybody to do all right so you open the first location in Brentwood in in 2010 2010 and what's what happens if people show up? So I don't know if you remember Daily Candy. Yeah, it was it was like that that daily email listserv thing about about fashion, right? Yeah. Well, back in its like original state, Daily Candy was this like website or that you would get emails from them, and they would be these like places you've never heard of, and they would break like businesses and stories. You'd get these like nuggets of of information that nobody knew. And we got Daily Candy to write a story about Drybar coming. That must have ran like three or four days before we opened. I remember sitting at lunch with my brother on our Blackberries because before iPhones. And, and we used to get appointment notifications. And all of a sudden, we're sitting at lunch and our phones start going crazy. And all these appointments start booking. And we're like, 
we thought like they can we thought like the system was broken. We we're like, what is going on? And then someone sent us the Daily Candy piece, and we were like, oh my god, it's because Daily Candy ran today. And so everybody started booking appointments before we even open. And so that very first day, we opened to a very very full shop. And so that first day was bananas. I mean, women were like lining up. Women were pissed because they were coming and they were like, it said you could walk in. And I'm like, oh, we don't have any more chairs. And and I was, I was doing blowouts at the first chair and I was running the front desk. And I was, I mean, I was, I was there around the clock probably for six months before I took a day off because I just couldn't leave it. And I didn't want to leave it. It was so fun. So you guys were incredibly busy, like right from the beginning. So, so were you making a profit in, in that first year? Well, even within that first year, we turned everything back into the business. So not really. You know, I mean, we were barely taking any money for ourselves. And within six months, we opened our second store. And it just kept going and going. How did you scale it up? I mean, obviously, you had like a big hit on your hands. Right. So how did you begin the process of of scaling it up when you didn't have a whole lot of cash to work with? Well, that was the challenge. And that's where it was like, thank God for Michael, because Cam and I were like the creatives. And we're like, what now? You know, we really didn't know what to do. Neither of you guys... We're sort of business people. Not at all. But we all knew we had something on our hands. And we used to, I used to get women coming in being like, can you get these Beverly Hills women their own shop? It was like we were the cool club you couldn't get into, but that's not very cool for long, you know. So. And did your husband at this point leave his, no, his job? No, he couldn't leave yet because I wasn't taking a salary. I was like, we still needed his salary. So he was, but he was still doing a lot of work. I mean, gosh, my poor husband, he was basically working two full-time jobs. And you had two kids. And we had two kids. So I, it was crazy. It was such like a life flip. And it was, you know, we just didn't, we couldn't believe how how much our lives had changed. And uh, yeah, and then we, uh, Cameron stayed, I think it was about a year and a half before he actually left his job to be able to to come to drive our full-time. So as you started to, to scale up, did you have to go uh, find outside investors? So again, I knew nothing about raising money, and Michael started to say, "Hey, I think, I think we should franchise this because we had we were getting mobbed with franchise requests." I mean, I remember like we had a, our first meeting with like a franchise consultant group at Cameron's office, like his big advertising office, because that's the only place that we had an office. Like we could sit at a conference table, which is so that's so funny. That was so long ago. But so we started getting like our documentation and together, so we could franchise. And so I was a little like not like super excited about franchising because I didn't I didn't want to like give it away is how I kind of felt about it. Yeah, I mean, I mean I I would imagine that you would be freaked out that, you know, some franchise couldn't maintain the quality that you wanted to maintain. Oh yeah, it was it kept, it kept me up at night and and we we were very very particular and about who we franchised with and made sure that they understood the importance of all of that stuff. And and like I said, there there was that fear and there still is that fear today, but it was great. And it really did help spread our name and, you know, much quicker than we could have if we didn't do franchising. And then we're raising money at the same time. You you guys opened uh, your first store in 2010, which is crazy. By the way, how, how many locations do you have today? 67. Well, 68 as of tomorrow. It's pretty insane that you go from being a stay-at-home mom to running a or being a, a an executive at a multi-million dollar company in like two years. How did you mentally make that transition? It's still so mind-blowing to all of us that it took off and happened the way it has. And it, it's, it's been such a shift and it is it, it was hard and it's still hard to this day balancing it all with the kids. And but I think we all kind of grew into it pretty naturally, and, and we there's so much passion behind what we're doing, and we all love it so much that 
this probably adrenaline rush that it was a lot of figuring it out as we went along, but but we did. Do, do you work more now or do you work less now than, than you did when you started? It's a different kind of work. In the beginning, I was in the stores nonstop all the time. And I, I remember so well when it went from like three to five to seven stores and being like, I can't be in all the stores at, all, at one time anymore. Like I used to be able, I remember we had Brentwood, West Hollywood, Palisades and Studio City. Like I could hop around. Those were pretty easy for me to get to store to store. And then as we started to grow, you know, I slowly but surely like started bringing in people who, you know, we brought in a regional manager who kind of managed the managers and then I managed the regional manager. And, and it kind of kept going like that in that way. And now now we have this massive infrastructure how, now. How many people work for the company? Well, there's about 3,000 stylists and about, about, I don't know, maybe 70, 80 people in our support center. So it's pretty massive now. And so now it's like, you know, it's good and bad. I don't have to be in the weeds every day, which I which is kind of good. But then it's like there's days that I'm like, I, you know, decisions get made and things get made that I'm not involved in anymore, which I used to be involved in so much. And, you know, it's like it's very hard for me to walk in stores. I walk in stores and I see everything that needs to be fixed and changed, you know, where I, I don't get to enjoy them <laughs> the way most clients do. Does that not only drive you crazy, but drive the people in the stores crazy? When I come in, I think it I think it makes everybody nervous, which is still so weird to me. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, why are you nervous? <laughs> but it does. And that is truly the weirdest thing. And, and Courtney, our, our field director, she's like, why don't you understand that it makes people nervous? I'm like, I don't understand. I don't think people should get nervous. <laughs> what what have you learned about, you know, I mean, you, you didn't have a business degree. You didn't have no, exper- managerial experience. You weren't trained to do any of this. So what are some of like the, your strengths that you learned about and your weaknesses you learned about as you had to kind of take on these roles? Well, I think my strength is was the confidence that I knew this business really well. Nobody could tell me I didn't know this business. I knew how to treat customers. I knew how to treat stylists. I knew how to make this business work. I knew how to talk to people, I think, from being in PR, you know, everything I had done, I always felt like, I mean, it's so cheesy, but I felt like everything like led me to this moment in my life. And I felt like I had what I needed to have to run these stores. And then there were, you know, there are things that I didn't know that that's where Michael and Cam came in. And Michael knew to hire, like we needed a president of retail. I was like, I didn't, didn't even know that was a thing. Like, I, you know, and so there was so much of like the things that I didn't know were filled in. And I think that that was one of my biggest learning experiences. You need to bring on people who know what you don't. What is, I mean, a lot of people listening would say, I would never be able to, to work with my partner in a business. Like, it's really hard, but it sounds like you guys have a, a really, you know, functional working relationship and a great marriage. Is that is that yeah. true? I mean, does, it, are, do. are, are I there, mean, there tension? Is there tension in running the business together? Yes, I mean there there is. I mean, my husband and I is certainly a struggle, and and yeah, it definitely comes with its challenges. But the good so much more outweighs the bad. And we we have especially now we have different teams that work under us, and so we don't have to like we don't work nearly as closely as we did in the beginning. But there's so much trust that you have when you're working with your husband and your brother that it supersedes everything. I think. If I said to you, you know, seven years ago when you were, you know, driving around in your Nissan Xterra to people's homes blow-drying hair. I love that, that car. That in, in seven years, you're going to have 70 stores all across the country and you're going to be doing $100 million in, in revenue a year. Would you be like, 
You're out of your mind? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. I mean, I could not see that far down. And, and I remember people asking us, you know, what's next for you guys? And I was like, well, we're going to keep opening stores. And I think it was, you know, to, to be at 67, I mean, it's so mind-blowing because it wasn't a premeditated, like, we didn't have a business plan. It wasn't like, this is our goal and this is our trajectory. Like, there was none of that. It was all this very organic and we're on to something, so we're going to figure it out and keep growing it. Yeah. And it's very, very rewarding for me personally because I was, like, the one in the family that everyone's like, oh, God, what's Allie going to do? And, and so it's it's particularly gratifying, especially for my parents who have seen my brother and I succeed together in business. And we love that we're able to be close on another level through the business. So it's pretty special. Ali Webb, founder of Drybar. The company, by the way, is planning to expand internationally very soon into Canada and also into Europe. Ali just published a book all about blow-drying hair. It's called The Drybar Guide to Good Hair for All. And you might not believe it if you met her or if you saw pictures of her, but Ali's hair is actually naturally curly. I guess I should clarify, you have very uncurly hair right now. Yes, well, yes. But this is like a very carefully styled look. Did you get that done in the last few days? Well, I am a professional stylist myself, and I have been for 20 years, so I actually did my own hair this morning. I I know how to do that. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) I built a business on that. And don't turn us off just yet, because after the short break, stories on the things you guys are building. Stay with us. It's How I Built This from NPR. Hey, just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible, Discover. Become a new card member, and at the end of your first year, Discover will match all the cash back you've earned dollar for dollar. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Only for new card members, limitations apply. Okay, we're now at the part of the show we call How You Built That. And this week, we have a story out of Nashville, Tennessee. My name is... Dr. Mike Butera. I'm the founder and CEO of Artifon. Artifon makes musical instruments, which was a natural move for Mike because he plays like a few dozen instruments himself. Anyway, around six years ago, Mike was at a dinner party with a bunch of musician friends. And after dinner, we wanted to play music together, but we didn't have any instruments. We just had the phones in our pockets. So they hooked up their phones to computer speakers, launched some music-making apps, And they started to jam. But we were just staring at our screens. And we really wanted to interact with each other or get lost in the music, close our eyes. You know, like Mick Jagger, Keith Richards. They wanted to feel the music. But Mike and his friends, they felt kind of pathetic. They they were just staring at their screens and their dinky little speakers. And then Mike had an idea. I thought, what if this speaker had a guitar neck? What if this speaker had keys on it? What if it had a little drum pad? I just wanted this speaker to become a musical instrument. So Mike called up some of his engineer friends and he asked them to help him build one. And this is what they made, a digital instrument that looks kind of like the neck of a guitar, but sounds like, well, like almost every instrument you can imagine. It has a fingerboard and a row of buttons that can be strummed or tapped. You can hold it like a guitar. You can hold it upright like an upright bass. But you can also set it down on the table 
or your lap and play it like a piano or a drum pad. And when you put it on the violin setting, you can play it like a violin. You can actually hold your iPhone out and move your iPhone around in the air. And that will act like a bow. Mike says it took them about six years to get the instrument just the way they wanted it. Which isn't necessarily a Silicon Valley-style way to do it. Uh, It was more, in our case, a, a Nashville way, which is go into studios with musicians and see what works and go back and refine it and, and really look at the craft of building this. And to get it off the ground, Mike and his partners actually raised over a million dollars on Kickstarter. They call it the Instrument One, and it's selling for about 400 bucks. Really, I wanted this idea to be something that anybody could use, rather than just making a musical instrument for musicians. I wanted to make one for everyone else. That's Mike Butera of Nashville, founder of Artifon. We love hearing your stories, and if you want to tell us yours, please go to build.npr.org. That's build with a D, .npr.org. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. If you want to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to howibuiltthis.npr.org. You can also write to us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at howibuiltthis. Our show is produced this week by Casey Herman with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpour, and Jeff Rogers. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. And just one last thing. 1A is NPR's new daily show inspired by the First Amendment. 1A is the news show with those who make the news. Great guests and topical debates, all framed in ways to make you think and engage. Each day, 1A will champion your right to speak freely. Check out 1A with Joshua Johnson from WAMU and NPR. You can find it on the NPR One app or visit npr.org slash podcast. In the late 90s, Ricky Martin led the so-called Latin explosion. 20 years later, we are asking, who was that really for? I'm Sam Sanders. On my show, It's Been a Minute, we're breaking down some big crossover moments in pop history and asking if they worked. Listen to It's Been a Minute from NPR. NPR.